0: There are several passages of Scripture that I wish to read. The first is taken from the ninth chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew and begins um, really at verse 32. And they went out, and behold, they brought to him a dumb man possessed with a devil, and when the devil was cast out, the multitudes marveled, saying it was never to be seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casteth out devils through the prince of the devils, Pray ye, therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Now then, I want to remind you that each of the first five books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, all give us a great commission. All of them contain instructions which are really orders from our Lord, not suggesting but commanding us uh, as we go to be as witnesses. Let me read from Matthew 28, 18. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And then in Mark 16, now, I understand by, because we have a lot of people who are knowledgeable in the New Testament here, You all know that the ending of Mark is in question from verse 9 following. Uh, The reason is that it does not appear in some of the better manuscripts. But if you note carefully the things that are indicated there, that longer ending which scholars refer to has uh, some good credible uh, sources behind it. But anyway, even in it, we find go into all the world and preach the gospel to the whole creation. And one of the best attested uh, manuscripts has an edition which is printed in your uh, New American Standard Bible uh, from Mark that says, And they promptly reported all these instructions to Peter and his companions. And after that, Jesus himself sent out through them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. Now that's in Mark. Now in Luke 24, 46, He commanded them that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be preached in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of all these things. And behold, I send the promise of my Father unto you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And then in John chapter 20, verse 21, he said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, even so I send you. And then I can't resist putting verse 30 from John 20. Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these have been written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And then, of course, in the book of Acts, Chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times of the seasons which the Father has fixed in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit is come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So there's our mandate, and there, there are orders. And now... One of my favorite preachers once came here to Montreat and um, spoke down in Anderson Auditorium. I didn't get to hear him. This was many years ago. His name is Frederick W. Borum. He's uh, a New Zealander and uh, has been gone to be with the Lord for a great many years. And F.W. Borum, like a great many other preachers, was a great admirer of a very great man of God, one who has been written up in any book where you study preachers. Let me begin because I made a note on a particular day when it snowed just like it did today. This is the beginning of his essay. Snow, snow, snow. It was the first Sunday of the new year and this was how it happened. On the roads and the footpaths, snow was already many inches deep. The fields were a sheet of blinding whiteness and the flakes still were falling as though they never meant to stop. The caretaker fought his way through the storm from his cottage to the chapel in Artillery Street, wondering whether on such a wild and wintry day anyone would venture out. It would be strange if on the first Sunday of the new year there should be no service. But he unbolted the doors of the chapel and lit the furnace and the stove. Half hour later, Two men were seen bravely trudging their way through the snow drifts, and as they stood on the chapel steps, their faces flushed with their exertions, they laughed and shook the snow off from their hats and overcoats. What a morning, to be sure. By 11 o'clock, about a dozen others had arrived, but where was the minister? They waited, but he did not come. He lived at a distance, and in all probability, the roads were impassable for him. So what were they to do? The deacons looked at each other and surveyed the congregation. Except for a boy of 15 years of age who was sitting under the balcony, every face was known to them, and the range of selection was not great. There were whisperings and hasty consultations as to whether or not they should have a service. Then one of them, a poor, thin-looking man, a shoemaker, a tailor, or something of that sort, Yielded to the murmured entreaties of the others And he mounted the pulpit stairs He glanced nervously around at 300 empty seats But not quite There were a dozen or a 15 of the regular worshipers present And then that strange boy sitting under the balcony People who had braved such a morning like this Deserved at least an opportunity to worship And especially that strange boy under the balcony well, a marble tablet now adorns the wall near the seat which, which that boy occupied on that snowy day. The inscription records that that very morning, the boy sitting under the balcony was converted. He was 15 years old, and he died at 57. But in the course of the intervening years, he preached the gospel to millions, and he led thousands upon thousands into the kingdom of God. Let preachers study this story, said Sir William Robertson Nicol, and let them believe that under the most adverse circumstances they may do their very best work for God. You see, on that day, that boy that was converted was named Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Mr. Spurgeon has been the example of all of us who have been preachers. When I studied at the University of Edinburgh, the greatest preacher in the English-speaking world to me is James S. Stewart. And I remember asking Mrs. Stewart when I was in their home one time, who was Dr. Stewart's favorite preacher? And uh, she said, well, I can answer that because on our honeymoon he read Spurgeon's sermons." (laughs) So you can see something of of Spurgeon. Helmut Thielecki in Hamburg, Germany, who is the greatest preacher in Europe probably uh, today, uh, is also a great admirer of Spurgeon. All of the preachers read Spurgeon. And yet he was the 15-year-old boy who was converted that day under the balcony on that snowy day when other people didn't think it was worthwhile maybe to even have a service. So you see, God can do great things here. And by the way, the preacher who preached that morning, uh, the tailor or shoemaker or whatever sort of person he was, as Spurgeon later described him, became confused, and all he could do was repeat the text. That's a pretty good thing to do when (laughs) when you get confused. And his text was, Look unto me, all ye ends of the earth, and be ye saved. And so every time he stumbled and couldn't think of something else to say, he simply said, Look unto me, all ye ends of the earth, and be ye saved. And young Spurgeon, 15 years old, who was trying to get to a good church where he wanted to go that morning to hear a famous preacher, couldn't get there because of the snow, kept hearing him say those words. And that day he gave his heart to Jesus Christ. So you see good things are in store for us here this morning. Now then, when we look into this passage of Scripture that we have just been uh, had read in our hearing a while ago, Newt read for us from the Old Testament a passage where uh, God is speaking against the uh, prophets to Israel. He has seen in them a falseness. They have betrayed the people. And he likens them to sheep that have no shepherd. Uh, He likens them to people who have not been looked out for who are harassed and wearied, and there are multitudes. We live in a world of billions of people, uh, two and a quarter, or two and four tenths billion to three billion, who really have no strong witness uh, or church or Bible uh, where they can be spoken to about Jesus Christ today. And even here in America, where the gospel is preached, it is so imperfectly uh, lived by so many of us, and how much more we need to pay attention to what Jesus says here when we see uh, what he does when he looks at the multitudes. He echoes the great father heart of the God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. And if you're careful to read the Gospel of Matthew, you know that it is the story of the king. Because right in the very beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, you find some Gentiles, who come all the way from that strange land that we call Iran or Persia today, who came all the way seeking knowledge of where he was born who was to be king of the Jews. And so gospel, the gospel of Matthew presents Jesus as the king, the king of the Jews. But he came unto his own, and his own would not receive him. And as he began to announce this, a Kingdom, you remember, at his baptism, a voice from heaven vindicated who he was. You remember that when he had gone into the wilderness, even Satan acknowledged who he was. That when he had started the Sermon on the Mount, which begins in Matthew chapter 5, he announces the principles of the king, the conduct of those who come under his lordship and his sovereignty. And then he begins a demonstration of great power and authority. That he can heal those who are blind. He has compassion on them and they are made to see. That he has compassion on those who are hungry and so he feeds them. That he has compassion on those who are lepers and are isolated and separate and apart from other people. And yet Jesus loves them and his voice reaches to them. And his compassion means that there comes from his deepest being a love for for them, and he makes them to know that love. And he wants his disciples to see that he has this love too. He has it for those who are demon-possessed, for those who are what Luke describes in the quaint King James translation as lunatic, those who are insane. There's a difference between mental derangement and demon-possession differentiated by Dr. Luke. And then when Jesus' authority is being presented here, As one of great compassion, he comes to this place where he looks and thinks over all the villages where he has been teaching, seeing the world as a place of ignorance that needs the wisdom and the instruction of the Word of God, where he has been preaching, and the word here is proclamation. That's why we had to sing those tough hymns this morning, heralds of Christ who bear the king's command. Uh, we are heralds. And the word for preaching here is a herald who has come from the king bringing a message. And here is a world that is at war against God. And here is a, one who is bringing us the message of the king by which we may receive pardon and forgiveness of our sins. And so that's why uh, he wants them to know that there's compassion for those who have sinned and are frustrated and haunted and ridden by their guilt, that there is deliverance for them. And so he comes not only uh, a healing, he comes not only teaching, but he comes preaching, bringing the word of the king that there is mercy for those. And then he bids his disciples to look at the multitudes. He wants them to see what he sees. What do you see when you see other people? Do you see a person in whom Jesus has great love or do you see an enemy? Are you conscious of another person's class or color or something else that separates you from him? Or do you have the eyes of Jesus? If you do, then you will see what Jesus saw. Then you will feel as Jesus felt and you will want to do what Jesus does. And this is incumbent upon those of us who claim to be his followers. Now, I read you the five accounts of his instruction for the Great Commission. Uh, The most familiar of those, of course, is the one given to you from the gospel according to Matthew. You find, first of all, that he makes an announcement. And what is that announcement? That all, all power has been given unto me. All authority, all power has been given unto him. It has come to him, all power in heaven and in earth. We have been studying in Ephesians, and soon we will begin getting into the time in our prayer meeting lessons about wrestling against principalities and powers and the rulers of wickedness in high places, that there are forces at work behind the scenes in Ephesus and forces at work behind the scenes in Montreat, and in the Kremlin and also uh, in Washington and in every city and all of the world that the power of the evil one is at work. But Jesus has all power in heaven and in earth and he has authority and power over that evil one too. And so we share uh, in that power of his when we go out obedient to his command. In Matthew 28, when we are told to go, it's interesting That he tells us as we are going It has been pointed out by one great Bible scholar That uh, this means that as we are going He said all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth Go ye therefore is what it says in the King King James But it really says as you are going While you are going This is not a command that we are to do at some time But as we are going teach all nations Uh, It means not only that we witness to them about the word of Christ, which we certainly must do, but we are to teach them. And when they are taught, they are to be baptized. Uh, Here is the warrant uh, for some structure in the local church. A person hears that he may be forgiven of his sins and reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. And then he is to be taught, And then he is to be gathered in and baptized as one of the believers then he is to be completed he is to be instructed more and more in the faith baptizing them in the name in the name by the way of the father the son and the holy spirit Uh, here that name is this one name and we are baptized into that name teaching them to observe all things you see brings them on teaching them to observe all things i have no right to go through the Gospels and say, well, I like Beatitude number one and Beatitude number three, but I don't care for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, or I don't care for Jesus teaching over here about hell, or I don't care for what he says here about loving my despicable neighbor. Uh, No, we can't do that. Uh, We are we are, are commanded here to teach them to observe all things. Whatsoever I have commanded you, What he has commanded them, we are to observe and we are to teach. And this is important for us to remember. That that uh, pronouncement which has been made, that he has the authority and the instructions which have been given to us are to be carried out and he wants us to carry those out. And uh, this is bound up in him as a person. I, I, this week, profited greatly from studying John Stott, who was at a conference on missions that I attended about 10 days ago in Atlanta. And John Stott says that in, in each of these appearances where Jesus is giving the warrant and the instruction and the marching orders for us to go, showing that compassion which he showed and, and proclaiming that message which he tells us to proclaim, that first of all he presented himself to his disciples who still had some lingering doubts And he would show them his hands and try to demonstrate to them the benefits of his death. And John Stott, a good Anglican, tells us that when we partake of the blessed Lord's Supper, Jesus is showing us again his hands. When we partake of the bread, he is showing us again his body broken so that our sins, which are many, we have the assurance of them all being taken away. And he wants us to remember that. You remember the disciples were timid and afraid and Jesus presented himself to them. And then after presenting himself to them and claiming to show them that peace has been made with God through his death and the great power of the resurrection is there and that he is really alive, he sends them forth uh, with the authority and the commission that they have, these marching orders, which are to take them into all the parts of the world to teach and to preach the gospel. Now then, what about you and what about me? Do we observe Jesus' command to pray to the Lord of the harvest to thrust forth laborers into his field? Do we? Do you ever pray that there will be more missionaries? Do you ever pray that the Lord will search your own heart as to whether or not you should be a missionary? Do you ever pray whether you will even be able to witness to the person around you? Each one of us is commanded to be a missionary. And Jesus wants us to know that. And, we, and he wants us to live up to it. That each of us, is this is called the season of Christian witness. And that's good. That we are to bear a witness at home in the jails like Charlie Hardy was talking about a while ago. In the hospitals where some of us go and visit and to people all around us, wherever we have the opportunity, to the person in the dormitory, we are to be a missionary. We are to be a witness to Jesus and it's important for us to remember uh, that. This week I was talking with a couple of doctor friends and one of the men I was uh, telling him, we were talking about surgeons and how impersonal some surgeons can be and this man is a surgeon. And uh, he said to me that one of his instructors in med school had told him years ago that when he entered into a patient's room, not to stand there in his uh, suit or in his white uh, smock and simply speak briefly a moment to the patient and go away, but he said, sit down and the patient will get the impression that you're interested in him if you'll sit down. And he'll even think you've stayed longer than you've stayed, even if you just stay a minute or two. He said it'll put him at his ease. And he said in another thing, write a little note on your your chart about things that might be of interest to him and call these to his attention and he won't be so apprehensive when he comes into your office and you're discussing a possible surgery or things that might happen. And then I began to think about a Christian doctor I knew. And about how he used to keep meticulous notes and he would write down on his note when he interviewed a patient, non-practicing Baptist. <laughs> he, he would write down Episcopal but never go. Uh, he, he would write down uh, little things about him likes gardening. And then he would talk to the person when he would come back for his checkup. He would, he would add one verse from scripture And then see how he responded to it. And then on his charts he would add another verse when he came back. And then over the years he was able to lead people to the Lord. In a marvelous way. To gain people that he could win them into the kingdom. And so this is a a thing that we are to do. We are to be witnesses for him. uh, No matter where we go. And no matter where we are. We are to bear that faithful testimony for Jesus Christ. I... I... was amused this morning when i was reading the thing by ethel waters because she is such a stalwart witness for jesus and when i think of her in the motion picture industry and then those years of her life when they were wasted and then how she witnessed for jesus when she did rededicate her life to him and then how even at her death that marvelous sweet old lady got her witness out Corytin boom in the prisons and then we think about other people like David Livingston in Africa who found such great comfort in those words of, of the Lord Jesus, lo, I am with you always, that promise which, uh, he, in which he found such comfort even in the hardest place in the jungle. And how we need to remember those words too and how we need to pray for our missionary people. I know that most of you know the story of Livingston you know that when he went to Africa he set three goals for himself it was first of all to evangelize he was a medical doctor and he wished to use his medicine as a means of evangelizing but he realized that Africa was a vast dark continent that people did not know anything about and so secondly beside evangelism he put number two to to discover the undiscovered secrets. He knew the Zambezi River and the Nile River and the Congo River held secrets about how all of that continent might be opened up to evangelization. And so he determined that he would do what he could in exploring those rivers so that others might go and take the gospel. And did he have an interest in people who were oppressed? His third goal that he set for himself in going to Africa was to abolish to abolish the desolating stra- slave trade. He had a young son who came here to the United States of America and fought in the American Civil War largely because of his principles opposing slavery and who died in Anderson Prison in Anderson, South Carolina, David Livingston. David Livingston suffered terribly for Jesus Christ. He was married to someone whom he deeply loved, who was herself the daughter of a missionary, Mary Moffat. And I have told many times about Livingston's death, but I never told you about Mrs. Livingston's death that I can remember. You remember his favorite verse was what I've read this morning, "'Lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the world' and how he took comfort in this word. Well, how did it work out? Listen, in spite of that assurance, did he ever find himself alone? in a savage land. It looked like it when he stood bent with anguish beside the sad and lonely grave at Shipanga. Poor Mary Livingston, the daughter of Robert and Mary Moffat, was never strong enough to struggle as a pioneer. For years she tried, but having the children and all was just too much. Finally she had to give up with sickness and go home to Scotland. She stayed there to care for her children and to pray for her husband as he pressed tirelessly on. But even out in Africa, people will talk and the gossips at the white settlements were incapable of comprehending any motive that could lead a man to leave his wife and plunge into the interior, save the desire to get as far away from her as possible. So hearing of the scandal and stung by it, Livingston wrote to Mary to come back to Africa. When she came back, She was there only a few weeks, and fever struck her again. And a few weeks more, she was dying. The man who had faced death so many times and brave dangers is now utterly broken down and weeps like a child. Oh, my Mary, my Mary, he cries to the gentle spirit, sighing itself away. I loved you when I married you, and the longer I lived with you, I loved you all the more. How often we would have longed for a quiet home since you and I were set adrift in Africa. Oh God, pity the poor children. For the first time in my life, he wrote in his diary, I feel willing to die. I am left alone in the world by one whom I felt to be a part of myself. Oh, leave me not, forsake me not, O oh God of my salvation. And then the words of Jesus came back to him. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. The words from the epistle to the Hebrews to persecuted Christians who were persecuted. He hath promised, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. This is the faith of Tremendous people who have gone to the end of the world. People here at home. May I close by telling you about Greg Brezina. You know him. He played football for the Atlanta Falcons. And he was a linebacker who was paid to block the kick in a big ball game. Mike Mitchell was on the opposing team and he was paid to kick the goal. But the kick had just gone wide of the goal. And then there was tumult because on that kick depended the entire game. For only two seconds remained. The winning team screamed at the top of their voices and was joined by the cheering throngs in Atlanta. But the kicker, who had failed, hunched forward and fell on the ground like a beaten animal. He pounded the turf. And then Greg Brazina, the linebacker on the opposing team, who had blocked the kick, came over and knelt beside Mike Mitchell, the place kicker who had failed, and he said these words. Mike, what I'm about to say to you may not make any sense, but it doesn't matter whether you made the kick or missed it. What matters far more is that you have peace in your heart which comes from Jesus Christ. All the sportscasters wondered what he was saying to Mike Mitchell. And when they found out, they could hardly believe it. It doesn't matter whether you made the kick or missed it. What matters is that you have faith in Jesus Christ. Now this is a missionary on a football field, a missionary who was a singer missionary in Africa that we read about and the privilege we have of praying for the Lord of the harvest to thrust forth laborers into his field. We need to be faithful witnesses for him. Let us pray. Oh God, our Father, we thank you for the gracious promise of your presence through our blessed Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the dignity that you've given us of bearing the King's commands. Help us to live in such a way that we may make our witness and testimony credible to those who hear us when we speak to them about Jesus. Bless each member of this congregation. If there is one person here who, like Spurgeon, on that day that he came to church, has not yielded his life to Christ, may they, as he did, yield this day to the lordship of the one who can save even to the ends of the earth, even to the uttermost, all of those who are willing to come unto God by him, even Jesus Christ. Help us to know the joy of that forgiveness which he brings, and help us to know the peace which comes to us, and help us to know through that resurrection power the victory that may be ours in living for him. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father In the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and our guide, be and abide with you all now and forevermore.